Greetings and welcome to the Animal Wellness Podcast, the official podcast of Animal Wellness Action. Hi, I'm your host, Joseph Grove. On this show, we talk about animals from the perspective of people who care about them and have the ability to improve their lives by influencing culture and supporting laws and regulations accordingly. To stay up to date with all of our news and information, subscribe to this podcast, receive our free newsletters and more, visit animalwellnessaction.org. Wayne Paselli and Marty Irby are with me today. Wayne is the president and founder of Animal Wellness Action. Marty is its executive director and chief lobbyist in D.C. Uh, why don't you get us going with the legislative update, Marty? What's going on on the Hill? Absolutely. Thank you, Joe. We've had an exciting few months on Capitol Hill. We have a lot going. Of course, we have a raft of new legislation that our leader here, Wayne, has come up with and the issues we're working on. Uh, we're going to be talking about one of those issues further in this podcast, but we're really excited about a few bills that we think we can get over the goal line in the coming months, in the coming year. First and foremost, the Big Cat Public Safety Act that is the bill that is discussed in Tiger King with Carol Baskin and Howard Baskin that we work on. We now have over 230 co-sponsors on the House bill. We have nearly 50 Republicans. We've brought on several new senators that have never joined the bill before, and we're really excited about trying to get that one done and signed into law. It did pass the House in the previous Congress, and we didn't get enough time to move it through the Senate. The Shark Fin Sales Elimination Act has actually already passed the Senate in a package of bills related to trade in China. We're not exactly sure where that's going to land in the House, but there is a chance that it could be attached to something else and then later moved through the House of Representatives. So we feel like the Shark Fin Bill could get done maybe even by the end of this year. Uh, one of the newer bills that we've been working on, the FDA Modernization Act, has really caught a lot of attention. Um, Senator Rand Paul from Kentucky is leading that bill with Senator Cory Booker. They have two other Republicans and Senator Ben Ray Lujan from New Mexico on board. And then we have almost evenly split Republicans and Democrats on the House bill that's led by Congressman Vern Buchanan, Congresswoman Elaine Luria, and Congresswoman Nancy Mace. And we're hopeful that we'll be able to do something with the Minks or Super Spreaders Act. It's taken off. Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro from Connecticut, who's the chairman of the House Appropriations Committee, is leading that bill. There are a couple of opportunities that we have there. Maybe the year-end spending bill it could get attached to. Um, there are some other plays as well that I know we've been working on. And we've also been working on horse slaughter. You know, we talked about this in an earlier episode, our horse slaughter transportation amendment passed the House in the original infrastructure bill that was passed and sent over to the Senate. Unfortunately, the senators, as we say, all good things die in the Senate, stripped that provision out with some other provisions, the larger part of the bill. And when it came back to the House, we did not get that back in. So that effort is something we're going to have to restart from the beginning. And we continue to work on the other issues that we have, the Greyhound Protection Act, the Kangaroo Protection Act, the Animal Cruelty Enforcement Act, the Prevent All Soaring Tactics Act that we worked on a compromise on last year. We continue to discuss that issue and try to prod the industry to make progress. We still have several senators who continue to block the bill, so I don't know that there's a future for that legislation getting done anytime soon. And then most recently, we just this past week had a letter from 36 members of the House of Representatives, 12 Republicans, 24 Democrats, led by Congresswoman Nancy Mace, and Congressman Mike Quigley to the U.S. Postal Service inspector calling for that inspector to develop a comprehensive plan and strategy to crack down on the cockfighting birds that are being shipped from the United States to Guam, Puerto Rico, and other U.S. territories. So we've got a full plate as usual, but we're hoping to get some things done. If we get one of these signed into law before the end of the year, that'll be our seventh bill that we've gotten done in the past three or four years. And um, we really are working hard, appreciate everything that everyone is doing, contacting your federal legislators and asking them to co-sponsor these bills, because that is the most important thing that we have when we go to talk to a legislator is having those constituents that have talked with the senators and the congressmen and contacted their office. Right. And there are some great tools on animalwellnessaction.org where people can uh, make those connections. I believe you have a way on your website uh, to hook people up. And of course, uh, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that financial support is also key to this. Um, so uh, you can find out how to help in both ways at animalwellnessaction.org. Introducing our topic, milk. 
it does a body good. You probably heard that slogan for years. And before I even finished saying the word milk, you probably knew what the rest of that tagline was. But as we come to understand more about the consequences of a dairy-based diet, and the more we understand about what the U.S. government does to prop up the dairy industry, the more we really learn that milk doesn't do much good at all, except for the baby cows who are intended to drink it. We have a couple of guests today on the show who are going to help us explore this issue. Uh, one of them is Dotsie Bosch. Along before embodying radiant health and becoming an influential game changer, Dotsie uh, struggled for years with severe eating disorders. It was during her recovery that she discovered her gift and love for cycling. She went on to become an Olympic silver medalist, an activist, speaker, and nonprofit founder. She stars in the 2018 film, The Game Changers, is featured in the Netflix documentary, Personal Gold, and has given a TEDx talk. She currently serves as the executive director of Switch for Good, a health and performance-focused nonprofit that encourages all to live better, do more, and to do so dairy-free. Uh, she and Baywatch actress and certified health coach Alexandra Paul hosts the Switch for Good podcast, taking listeners on a transformative journey to optimal health and performance through plant-based eating. And also here, no Baywatch connection, but a heck of a lot of letters after his name is Dr. Milton Mills. Uh, he practices urgent care medicine in the Washington, D.C. area and has served previously as associate director of preventative maintenance and as a member of the National Advisory Board for Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. He's been a major contributor to position papers presented by PCRM to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, regarding dietary guidelines for Americans and has been the lead plaintiff in a class action lawsuit that asked for more warning labels on milk. So, um, so I'm just, just going to start this off. I got to admit every now and then at the end of a long, stressful day, I like to have a couple of little containers of drumstick ice cream. Dotsie, am I going to hell? Maybe. Well, you you reason- do not host this podcast and have a few drumsticks every night. Come on. It's they're small containers, Dotsie, <laughs> and really, really, they're they're merely delivery mechanisms for Hershey's chocolate syrup. That's oh the, no, it has dairy in it too. It does. Are you sure? Yeah. I've read I've read that stuff. It's I can't pronounce the stuff in that. It's chemicals. Well, Doctor Mills is a little more religious than I am. So, is he going to hell? Well, um, I, I I'm not sure. It depends on how you define hell. Um, because <laughs> well, you will, well, you, you can see me, you can look at me through this, you know, I'm 57, but you know, morbidly overweight, uh, prematurely gray. So physically I'm kind of already at least in Hades, Dr. Well, Mills. yeah, I, I was going to say if, 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 if you define hell in terms of the unnecessary health issues we create for ourselves by consuming things that our bodies really aren't designed to consume. Um, Yeah, you can, uh, um, you may be uh, on your way. In fact, um, I just uh, recently posted a meme uh, on my Facebook page where I talked to people about committing suicide on the installment plan. Um, Because, you know, if anyone called up and said, "I'm, I'm, I'm gonna commit suicide, we would all be alarmed, we would immediately flip into action mode and we would be we would do everything we could to try and convince that person that they had worth they had value um and you know something to live for and to not do harm to themselves well you can do the same thing you can kill yourself in increments by eating and consuming foods that are destructive to your health and that dysregulate your physiology uh, um, in ways that will lead to um, um, uh, disease and early death in the long run. And that is effectively committing suicide on an installment plan. And that's just as tragic as, you know, um, doing something, uh, you know, as quick as jumping off a building or using a gun. And, um, And equally, unnecessary. Um, And so, you know, I try to help people really stop and think about why are they doing the things that they're doing? What, you know, why are they defining health, happiness, or pleasure in ways that include self-harm? 
Um, that's a really twisted dynamic and, that we have in Western countries that we need to kind of reconsider and, 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 and uh, revisit. Yeah. All right. Well, very good. So, Marty and Wayne, this could be my last podcast. It's been nice knowing you. I could keel over by the end of it. And Dossie, since you've got experience, you know, you can you can take the reins of hosting the rest of of the show, you know, and and, and I hear everything you say, Dr. Mills, but we pay the dairy industry to not only put these these little cartons of milk. And I assume they're still in those little cardboard where you got to you got to peel them open and you still get some of the paper in your mouth. But we, we pay for that, and then we also pay for 32 million gallons of a year of milk to be dumped out. If it's so bad, if we're wasting so much of it, and this question's for anyone, why, why in the world is it still a thing? Well, I, I can just add something, and we'll just both answer it because there's probably a lot to say, but uh, it, it's, it's, it's wild to think how long our government has been regulating and subsidizing the dairy industry it's since the early 30s and and people are just absolutely flabbergasted when they find out it's to the tune of about 40 billion dollars a year and we're talking about a food group for cows uh, that we have decided we're going to push on humans that makes so many of us sick and at what Part of what we're going to talk about here is how disproportionately it affects people of color, upwards of 75 to 95%. And it is pushed on every single child in the public school system, upwards of 51 million of them. So 30 or so, it makes really sick via lactose intolerance with breathing trouble, exacerbating asthma, mucus building, stomach distress, diarrhea, constipation, and more, which obviously clearly affects their learning ability if they're, you know, if they're feeling uncomfortable, feeling sick uh, when they're sitting in class. And we're making them, making these children take that little half pint that you were talking about of milk in the, uh, you know, cardboard that you get stuck in your teeth when you open it. And we're making them take one. And if they want something else, we're making them have to provide a note from their physician or their parent, why they might want to bring up soy milk, an almond milk, bear milk, any other milk that doesn't come from the bovine species, they have to provide a note. It's really mind boggling, the, the, the layers of it. Well, and I, I, I'm going to be a little less politic um, and more direct. Um, we still have price supports and tax breaks for people who grow tobacco, okay? And we know that that is one of the most poisonous substances known to human beings in terms of there is no redeeming value. It creates all kinds of disease. It kills people. Yet our government still supports the growth and uh, distribution of tobacco products in this nation. So you can't look at what the government necessarily allows or even supports to say, does that make it a good thing? Because the answer is no. It, it depends on who has enough money to pay them. The fact is that, you know, sick children don't have lobbyists, um, you know, greasing the palms of congressmen and senators to have them make favorable legislation to um, get rid of dairy. But people who produce dairy, absolutely do. And in fact, when you look at the origin of the um, uh, uh, school lunch program, which was interestingly, the very first government food support program, most people in their naivete would say, oh, the government created the school lunch program because it was concerned about providing adequate nutrition to school children. Nothing could be further from the truth. The school lunch program was created in 1946, and it was created because we had just come to the end of the biggest war in world history, where we were literally fighting a war on, on both sides of the globe. We were providing food, not only for our armed forces, which uh, numbered uh, more than 4 million individuals, but we were providing food support to Russia to England, to uh, India and other places. And so we were producing just uh, humongous amounts of uh, dairy products 
And I try always to refer to them as products and not food because we shouldn't be eating them and shipping them around the world. And suddenly, boom, the war ended within a six month time period. And there was such concern among dairy farmers that if there was if they did not find some way to continue to sell the amount of dairy that they were producing, that there was going to be a huge drop in uh, price and in the dairy market, and that that would precipitate a recession. So someone came up with the bright idea, I know what, we'll foist it on school children. We'll buy up the excess dairy and give it to school kids, and that way we'll continue to support the dairy prices, support the dairy farmers, and uh, um, everybody will be happy. Well, it, everybody wasn't happy because uh, you'll also remember and that was uh, pre Brown versus the Board of Education. So at that time, the school system was very segregated and they were looking at all these, you know, nice little blonde haired, blue eyed white kids who by and large didn't have problems with dairy. And now that's not exactly true across the board. Marty can tell us about that. But the fact is that there was no concern about the impact on children of color. And uh, we now know that it has a very detrimental and disastrous impact on the health of children of color and, uh, and um, impairs their ability to focus, learn, concentrate, and contributes to the uh, um, uh, learning gap and, and achievement gap that we see when we look at children of color versus uh, uh, Caucasian children. Fascinating. And, you know, when you said that you weren't going to be so politic as Dotsie, I didn't think Dotsie was all that politic. And I was Thank wondering you. how you were going to top that. And, <laughs> and you, you sure did, Dr. Mill. So, so, so what are some of the percentages uh, of, of, let's just call it lactose intolerance? You probably have a better word uh, when we compare various, um, you know, ethnic groups, uh, you know, ethnographies, right? So how unpalatable is milk among, you know, African-American students, uh, mm -hmm. students of Asian descent, et cetera. Okay. So the, the prevalence of lactose intolerance among white Americans, we're going to use that as a baseline is roughly about 30%. Okay. Um, and when you start looking at, again, the various ethnic groups in African-Americans, it's 73 to 75%. Um, same thing with Native Americans, about 74 to 75% of Native Americans are lactose intolerant, 53% uh, of Hispanic Americans, and a whopping 95% of uh, um, uh, Asian Americans are lactose intolerant. And that's because the native cuisines of, uh, and diets um, of these ethnic groups do not uh, contain get dairy. So there has never been a uh, adaptation to the consumption of uh, lactose beyond weaning in these populations. And I might also add just parenthetically that if you take um, um, black Americans and divide them up between uh, um, recently arrived immigrants from Africa, vis-a-vis -vis, um, you know, African-Americans who've been in this country for several generations, certainly since uh, the days of slavery, you would see that within the newly arrived um, uh, Blacks from Africa, the prevalence of lactose intolerance is actually um, around 95 to uh, um, uh, 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 99%. And the only reason that there is um, less uh, prevalence in African-Americans is because of the widespread, um, well, rape of Black women during the period of slavery, which uh, accounted for the penetrance of a lot of European genes into the African-American gene pool. All right, I, I, was looking for, I was looking for a nice word, but there really isn't one. Yeah. <laughs> so, 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 Wayne, we're talking about how bad milk is for uh, consumers of, of that product. Um, remind us, since this is a show primarily about animal welfare, why this is so bad at the other end of this manufacturing process? You know, th this, let me just say, it's a, it's a fascinating discussion and there are a lot of health-related issues that we need to think about as individuals and as a society when it comes to animal products. I mean, the case for eating plant-based as a general approach to diet or reducing the amount of animal products and increasing plant-based 
you know, clearly brings so many benefits. We've heard about high fat, high cholesterol. Frankly, we haven't heard as much on dairy. This is a little bit startling to people, I'm sure. And, you know, I grew up, I'm a white kid. I grew up in the city, uh, Italian and Greek descent. And when I was growing up, the basic framework that the government fed us was the basic four food groups. You were told as a kid that you had to have drawn liberally from each of these four food groups. It was meat uh, and, and fish products in one, dairy and cheese in another, and then all the fruits and vegetables in one category, and then grains in the other. And if you didn't pull from all of those, you're not going to be strong, you're not going to be healthy, it's going to be a problem. As Dr. Mills said, that was more kind of a political construction of the ideal diet rather than any prescriptive approach when it came to health and wellness. And I think we've heard a lot in recent years about a lot of meat problems in terms of colon cancers and other forms of cancers and fat and obesity. We've heard about overuse of antibiotics. We've heard of hormones, so some of the inputs into those animal systems. But the dairy thing is a bit startling. And I'll tell you, I was startled when Dotsie Bouch and Dr. Mills really told me about the numbers of kids of color who are lactose intolerant. And I thought, my God, how can we be doing this as a society? How can we be putting milk, dairy cow's milk, on the lunch trays of Every kid, more than 50 million kids, and we don't hear about it. I mean, you talk about disempowered kids. They're kids, number one, and they're kids of color, and we just haven't heard about it. And I'm really impressed that, that Dotsie at Switch for Good has been leading this fight, and Dr. Mills has been such an intellectual leader uh, on this issue. And I'm sorry to filibuster here, but I wanted to just give that framing before going into the other piece, which is the animals. The animals matter to me and they should matter to all of us. You know, I remember talking to one of my uh, longest time friends, she's deceased now, but she said, you know, she really felt a debt to the cows. She, she drank milk for her, for her whole, you know, adult life. I think she stopped late, you know, in their seventies or eighties. And she said, you know, I'm really indebted to these cows. And if you are consuming milk products, even more than folks like myself, been a long time vegan, we should feel gratitude to these creatures. We should be appreciative. The least you can do is treat them decently and humanely. What we've done to some of the, some of the cows on these industrial farms is really distressing from an animal welfare perspective. I mean, the conditions are one thing, but the genetic manipulation of the animals in order to induce hyperproductivity. I mean, these cows used to produce just a few thousand pounds of milk a year. Now they're producing 25,000 pounds a year, 25,000. I mean, a body cannot do that and not have adverse effects in terms of their health and welfare and well-being. And, you know, when we did, when I, at a prior employer, when I was involved in an investigation of downer cows being dragged into slaughterhouses they couldn't walk. They were non-ambulatory. They were too injured or too sick to walk. And they dragged them with a chain or they pushed them with a bulldozer into the slaughterhouse so they can squeeze a little bit more out of them This in this form, in the form of low-grade ground beef. I thought, how could we be doing this to these poor cows? They give so much to us in terms of the milk that they have been kind of conscripted to produce. And then the final act is to drag them or push them with a bulldozer into a slaughter plant. I thought, this is terrible. And I learned at that point that the cows are so spent because of this hyperproductivity that they're slaughtered at three, four, five years of age. That's just a little bit longer than the beef cattle who are slaughtered. They're usually slaughtered at two, two and a half years of age. So these poor cows, they're, they're doing the milking and they're, they're, they have mastitis, they have foot problems. They have a range of other joint problems because of their mass. And then they go through the same thing that the meat animals. So a lot of people thought, and when I became a lacto-ovo vegetarian, I wasn't a lacto-ovo vegetarian for very long because I learned about what happens to the laying hens and the dairy cows. I thought, they actually have it worse. It's worse because they're killed for meat and they're produced for their, for their, for their reproductive products. So I think it's an animal welfare issue for sure. 
you could really take a serious look at this issue from an, especially from an industrial farming perspective and genetic health and wellness of the animal. And then when you then look at what Dotsie and Dr. Mills have done to draw attention to the racial fairness issues, anything, oh my God, this is really an issue that should command the attention of political leaders in the United States. I just want to jump in uh, on a couple of points um, that, you know, what that Wayne was making about how young these animals are. Um, I was a couple of years ago, I was asked to do a uh, uh, prepared lecture on grass fed versus conventionally raised um, beef animals in terms of whether or not um, there was any significant um, uh, um, health differences in uh, in the, the, the their uh, um, tissues in terms of their their impact on our physiology and uh spoiler alert no there isn't there there's subtle differences it really doesn't make a difference it's still toxic to the system but the thing that that really jumped out at me from um that uh preparing that lecture was exactly the point wayne just made and that is that these animals are essentially still babies or 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 the equivalent of children um, when they are um, uh, uh, slaughtered and 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 ground on, you know and ground up and, and and sent to market and you know in this country we we make a a a and rightly so a huge deal out of the heinousness of pedophilia. Well, we need to talk about pedophagia. Um, the fact that we eat the young, that we spend that our entire meat industry um, is built around eating young animals. Um, and we give them all sorts of growth stimulants and growth hormones uh, to force them to grow faster so that we can eat them younger. Because of course, the, the uh, fewer resources you put into growing the animal to this uh, market size, the, the bigger your profit margin. And it really is, um, um, just disgusting in a very perverse and disturbing way when you actually see what is happening. Yeah. And, and indeed, you know, of all the podcasts we've done, I think this one is the most shocking from a human consequence level. Where, who, where did it come from where someone looked at a cow? Uh, was it like a little caveman baby that pointed at a, at a cave cow and said, gosh, that looks good. Where, where did this start? <laughs> Now, well, say- I think that, you know, if you, if you think about all of human history, I mean, we've always feared famine and scarcity. Yeah. Right? Sure. So we, we want to make efforts to secure our food supply. That's a noble and, and laudable purpose in our society. And one of the great junctures in all of prehistory for humans and history was the domestication of animals. I mean, there's no bigger change. I mean, for 99% of human history, we were hunters and gatherers, and we were we were not sedentary people. And no. animal products were part of the equation in a in a substantial way, depending upon you know what latitude people lived. But the domestication era, where we took just fifteen or so different wild animals and we began to domesticate them, changed the human circumstance forever. And it allowed us to have sedentary populations and to store food and to grow communities and cities and nations. And, you know, you look at our own history, we had the the Dust Bowl in the 1930s, and we made a commitment as a nation not to have scarcity, that if you want to have security as a nation, you have food security. And we began this industrialized model not too long after that and started to treat animals like meat, milk, and egg-producing machines. And we put them indoors and we manipulated their genetics. And you know, so it's a long arc of history, and there's, I think, a very big difference between animals outside living on grass in terms of their welfare and these animals who are in industrial confinement systems, apart from the health consequences of it, just for the human health consumption. But from an animal health perspective, this has been a disaster. And now the, the per capita consumption of animal products has increased partly because of this marketing efforts and these checkoff programs. And, you know, we're, we're drinking milk into late stage adulthood. I mean, it's an infant formula from your own species. So to eat 
to consume the milk of another species is one thing, and to do it beyond infancy is a second thing. So I think I think it is a startling discussion to have for people because we're so indoctrinated at a young age to think that this is nature's perfect food. Milk, it does a body good. That's just marketing stuff. Right. The, the other thing that I that I I, I that we, we have to be clear on is that um the idea that um humans have always consumed um dairy and meat uh in the quantities and frequency that we are doing nowadays in modern culture is completely wrong for 99.9 percent .9 of our history as a species human beings and that includes the so-called civilized industrialized portion of it we human beings have been almost entirely plant-based out of necessity because when you are a farmer living on a farm and you got a couple of cows you need those animals as uh work uh, uh machines you need them to pull your plows to help you know move lumber and whatever around your farm um and you might take a portion of the milk that that cow produces and use it to uh, make food to help you get through winter but it would be insane to slaughter a you know 1200 pound animal that you couldn't possibly eat before it rotted so um people did not slaughter their uh, uh farm animals willy-nilly they they that was uh say a, a once a year thing it was more of a communal practice where it was done um, around holidays but for most of the year these people were eating plants um, and they, you know, they might have a supplement, a, a little bit of meat here and there, but the most of what they were eating were plants. The only time in our history where eating meat and dairy the way that we do nowadays has become practical and possible has been with the advent of one refrigeration because you cannot distribute huge amounts of animal foods or animal products, excuse me, without the ability to keep them from spoiling. And two, as Wayne was mentioning, mentioning the um, uh, heinousness of industrial farming, where you actually have the ability to grow uh, um, uh, these creatures in these uh, industrialized processes that allow you to produce, you know, uh, millions upon millions of animals that can then be uh, uh, turned into product that can be shipped, you know, wherever so that people can access it. Before the uh, middle of the uh, uh, 20th century, this did not happen. All people, uh, uh, most Westerners were still primarily a plant-based species. And that's why diseases like heart disease, gout, uh, diabetes, those are rich people's diseases because your average person could not eat that way and did not eat that way. So please, let's not make the mistake of thinking we as, as a species have been doing this uh, um, throughout our history. We have not. This is a recent and modern phenomenon, and it's bringing with it all of the baleful consequences of dining on products our bodies aren't designed to handle. And, and Dotsi, this is, I think, a, a good place to ask you a little bit about your personal journey, because you, I believe, subsisted subsisted on a diet similar to what Dr. Mills just described. And then you went through a period where it became abundantly clear to you that you needed to make a change. You did, and great things happened. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey? Yeah, well, it was a couple of years before I competed um, in my final race at the Olympic Games in 2012 in London. And so it was a little over two years before that. And quite frankly, I didn't really think I needed to make a change. I really came into this from the ethics route 100%. So I was uh, an Olympic athlete, hopeful, an Olympic hopeful is what I was. And I hadn't made the final team yet. And there were a lot of a lot of women who, uh, you know, were competing for that same seat. And I honestly just thought, oh my God, I hope I can stay the same. Like, I hope if I switch over to let me set up and just, you know, just say the same, just have the same strength and the same resilience, the same endurance, the same recovery and, and everything. It was like my big prayer. Uh, but very 
in a, in a very short span of time, I was blown away by the benefits. And I stood on the Olympic podium at, at, at just a couple months shy of my 40th birthday. And all of my teammates and those, 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 uh, those young whippersnappers that wanted my seat on the bike were all about 10 years my junior. And I was schooling them. <laughs> For the last year and a half leading with the Olympics. I mean, I had so much energy. I had I had so much more of a kick in my step. I could get up in the morning and I didn't feel swollen and what athletes will refer to as an as an athlete's hangover, which feels really similar to an alcohol hangover. You get up in the morning, you just, you know, we train three times a day as track cyclists. Uh, that was my event. And so you a lot of times would get up, especially at you know, 38 or 39, and it's like man, I can't even get on the bike till 11. Uh, but that all that changed. I just, I just had so, I had so much energy and my recovery and repair and the synapse in between sessions, like in between that morning and, and, and midday and evening training sessions was what was just truly remarkable, uh, how quickly I was recovering. And, and, you know, most people don't realize this, but, but athletes, you know, they, 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 they don't so that they can train more and train harder. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's cheating, but it's cheating to be able to do more work because the more work that you're able to do, the more output that you're able to produce. And that's, that's the better athlete. That's the athlete that's going to make the team. That's the athlete that's going to, um, you know, win an Olympic medal. So that's really, I kind of call it my, my clean, fair doping <laughs> regimen, the plant-based diet, because that is honestly what it did for me uh, with, without, without cheating. I would have never wanted yeah. to do that and didn't. So. so so just to make sure I understand your journey, you co- converted to a, a dairy-free, meat-free uh, diet, primarily, f- primarily for the ethics, mm-hmm. and you continued training, worried that the change would be harmful, <laughs> but contrary it actually proved to be super beneficial, right? Yeah. So, so that kind of blows out of the water, this entire argument that, well, if I'm going to be athletic, by golly, I need the protein and, and humans can only get protein from, from animal products. Yeah. It blows it right, right out the water. No doubt. Yeah. You Dr. Know, Mills. Yeah. Why does that endure as a myth that if you don't get animal protein, uh, you're not going to be healthy and muscular like Marty Irby is. Uh, for the same reason that a ball head pot belly 45 year old man goes out and buys a um, Ferrari and thinks that is going to make him look attractive to a 20 year old woman. Um, it's oh, just- no, wait, hold on. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> I got to I got to make a note. Hold on. Cancel <laughs> Ferrari. All right. Go it, ahead, sir. Thank it, you. It, it, it's all you know, cultural gaslighting and socialization, because we are constantly being miseducated, misinformed, misled by industry that that these foods are what we need for our health, what we need for our performance. But what I like to do is that is direct people to the largest and longest ongoing experiment that we know of, and that is looking at nature. And if you name any animal that has um, uh, uh, the ability uh, to, to, to do um, uh, 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 extreme, uh, uh, shows extreme strength, extreme endurance, not one of them is consuming dairy, not one of them is consuming meat, quite frankly. And in fact, um, when you look at how nature uses dairy, the time period when mammals are exclusively breastfeeding from their mothers, they're all laying in a, in a, in a, in a hole somewhere. They're hiding in the bush. They are somewhere stuck in a den. By the time they become active and start to get out and move around and, um, and run with the herd, not only are they, um, uh, uh, they may still be nursing, but they're also starting to eat their traditional food, which is where a lot of their um, energy and, and nutrients and minerals are coming from. Um, and so it, it's like not even nature tries to use uh, uh, dairy milk as a means of either mineralizing our uh, uh, skeletons or providing the fuel that we need 
for athletic performance, such as running and moving and so forth. And it is ludicrous to the point of being absurd uh, and maybe even obscene that humans have convinced themselves that somehow sucking on the teats of another animal is going to make us uh, these super organisms. Nothing but nothing could be further from the truth. One of the most important parts of what Dr. Mills just said, and I think that this is one of the reasons why we believe what we believe is about cow's milk is around the conversation of growth. And Dr. Mills, you do a great job. It's, it's explaining, you know, you get in your head, I think probably not just as an athlete, but as a mother that has a little baby and you want the little baby to grow, right? Everybody, I don't know why we're obsessed with like really tall, large people. You know, I, I'm, I'm from the South and my parents are always saying, oh, he's a really big guy. And you're like, okay, I don't know what, what it was. So, uh, but we are completely obsessed with that in this culture, especially I think. And so, yes, it's probably going to help Johnny grow a, a quarter of an inch taller, but what else is it going to help grow? inside Johnny's system, Dr. Mills? Well, I, actually, I wanna, I wanna talk about that because um, what studies have shown is that um, when children are fed um, um, dairy products, they do grow faster. And that, that faster growth rate actually starts in the womb. Um, um, there's work uh, that was presented uh, by Dr. Jackie Bussey, who is a um, plant-based pediatrician, where she showed that uh, women who consume cow's milk have larger babies um, um, at, at term than women who don't. Now, some people will say, hey, well, that's a great thing. Um, you, you know, they're having these big, healthy babies. No, it's not. Because number one, it results in much um, um, more severe injuries to the mothers in terms of uh, pelvic floor injuries uh, that can result in incontinence and other problems and sexual dysfunction as they move throughout their lives. But it also sets the children themselves up, the babies themselves up for uh, being more prone to diabetes, um, uh, heart disease, and other metabolic disorders as they age. Because what's clear is that that bovine milk is switching on genes that cause disease in humans. So this idea that this accelerated growth rate is somehow good is actually not good. And um, if you look at growth um, charts for uh, children who are raised on uh, cow's milk and, and standard American diet vis-a-vis -vis those who are raised um, as uh, uh, pure vegans, what you will see is that there appears to be a lag uh, between the growth rate of the uh, uh, vegan, vegan children versus those that are eating meat and dairy until um, they reach their teenage growth spurt. Number one, their teenage growth spurt comes later. Okay, so they tend to go through puberty um, uh, two to three years later than uh, 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 kids uh, raised in, on on Western diet. But that ultimately, and this is the fascinating part, the vegan children actually end up being slightly taller than uh, the children raised on the standard Western type diet. And um, I can I can speculate as to I, I, I think I have an idea why that is, but that I have no scientific proof and it's just pure uh, um, uh, uh, speculation at this point. But again, the, it is a fact that ultimately the study showed that the plant-based children will grow to be slightly taller than their meat-eating counterparts. So they, they actually reach a, a greater height at a lower body weight, which will translate into a reduced risk for all sorts of chronic diseases as they age. But let me come back to that later uh, uh, entrance into puberty. Um, you know, the Jewish phenomenon of the bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah, is meant to commemorate the transition in thinking in boys and girls from kind of a childlike mindset to a more adult way of viewing themselves in the world. And that happens around age 13. And I think if we all think back to when we were, you know, going from like 12 to 13, that is about when we began to see ourselves 
somewhat differently and in a more mature way vis-a-vis who we are relative to the world, what we should be doing with the world. Well, that's kind of when you start to, to, to really solidify your values, decide what's important to you, which way you want to direct your life. Um, and wouldn't it make sense that a child should be allowed to go through that process? And then once they have a good sense of who they are and who they are as a person, then their body develops into an adult body because now they know how to control it. Whereas in Western countries, it's the exact opposite. The body starts to change into an adult body, complete with sexual urges and everything before the child's mind develops. And that's why we have so much, I think, teenage angst, um, uh, um, so much uh, 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 teenage pregnancy and other problems because we are forcing our kids' bodies to go through uh, a change before their mind is prepared to handle it. It's like giving the keys to a Ferrari to a 12-year-old. You know, of course, they're going to go out and crash down the street. <laughs> they don't know how to handle something like that. Um, and, and, and so I think that it's really interesting that the, 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 the diets that we have embraced have implications beyond just our physical health, but they also impact and influence our psychological well-being as well. Wayne, turn it over to you. Well, I just want to say that you know, there's we're, we're having a broad discussion about about dairy and human health and the history of our food consumption patterns and production. And Dr. Mills, you know, has has really given us some some tremendous insight on the medical and health side of this. We've touched on one very pragmatic political campaign that we at Animal Wellness Action are undertaking with Switch for Good. And that is to change the way that our school system handles uh, dairy cow's milk and kids, and specifically kids of color. They're all treated the same way now, all the kids, no matter what their ethnicity is, what their race is. And the American Dietary Guidelines now recognize soy milk as a nutritionally equivalent fluid milk product, yet it's not available to kids in the schools. And kids of color are throwing away vast amounts of milk because it doesn't align with their their systems or they're consuming it and it's having an adverse effect on their their learning capacity, you know, their discomfort, they have torpor, they have other effects that put them at a disadvantage in the school system. And these are a lot of kids um, in some of our urban communities that you may have other disadvantages. So this is really compounding some of the challenges that these kids have. And we as as a country and as a United States government should do better than this. We should give kids options that don't make them feel uncomfortable, physically uncomfortable, and that are better for them. I mean, it's just, it's that simple. Either give kids something that is consistent with the health imperatives that we talk about, or you don't, and we're not right now, and we need to. And the USDA has been at the center of this, you know, agricultural pr- promotion program for decades, and we have other other influencers in our political system that have tilted the scales in this direction to really put kids at a disadvantage. So, in terms of the takeaway for our listeners. You know, great stuff about about the big picture of whether dairy is a suitable product for adults. Is it suitable for, you know, people of color? An explanation that really there may be something more to this than what we're being told by marketing. But in really brass tacks political terms, we need to change the way the school lunch program is handling uh, milk. It's just not working. It's wrong. And it's a it's a fairness issue in our society that has to be addressed. All right, great, Dotsy. Um, switch for good. It's the number four in that URL. So switch for good. Uh, dot com. Uh, it's dot org. Dot I have org. A orchestra of Chihuahuas. So I just got off mute. We'll see how this goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, all right, very good. Yeah, I want to be able to end on a on a, a real positive note and get people excited about what it could look like for for all of these children if we 
can get soy milk into public schools at the same reimbursement as cow's milk and not needing a note if you don't want a cow's milk. Um, and something I think maybe we haven't mentioned is that we were successful last year, uh, at the, well, really at the end of 2019, where has the time gone, uh, in, in getting uh, soy milk into the U.S. dietary guidelines um, as nutritionally equivalent. After this podcast, you know it is, soy milk is much, much better, but uh, I've got to start somewhere as nutritionally equivalent to cow's milk. And so, uh, and that's mostly because of the macronutrients are similar carbohydrates, proteins, and fat. But the real positive, and maybe this, some of the selling point for you, Joseph, is soy milk is 80 calories for an eight ounce glass. Cow's milk is 150. You do have the same amount of carbohydrates, but there's one gram of sugar in soy milk for eight ounces and 12 grams for uh, cow's milk. Fat, only four grams of protein. Um, sorry, sorry, only four grams of fat in soy milk and eight grams in cow's milk. They do have the exact same protein as they do carbohydrates. And then you have actual fiber in soy milk, right? We didn't even get into the fiber discussion, how critical it is for every gut health and, and every other type of health from, from head to toe. Dossie, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Dossie Bosch, uh, Olympic medalist and um, uh, TED Talk speaker, activist, switchforgood.org. Dr. Mills, just a noted expert on this stuff. Wayne, take us out. Well, you know, the U.S. Department of Agriculture is a huge player here. And on Capitol Hill, the agriculture committees are big players. Now, historically, the agriculture committees have been dominated by rural lawmakers with large animal agriculture constituencies, and they have really driven a lot of the policymaking here. For the first time ever in the 117th Congress, uh, 2021, 2022, we had the first ever African-American leader of the House Agriculture Committee. We have a number of members of of the committee who are who are African American. We have uh, Asian American members, Indian American members. We have a greater diversity on the ag committee than we've ever had. Now is the time for us in the United States to look at this issue of children's health and dairy products and these plant based alternatives that are better for the kids. And I really hope we take a serious look. I hope that Chairman Scott and other lawmakers look at this issue in a fair-minded way for fair outcomes for kids. Thank you. Thank you, Wayne. Thank you, guests. And thank you so much for our uh, listeners tuning into this, the Animal Wellness Podcast. Be sure to visit animalwellnessaction.org for all of our news and information and to sign up for our news alerts. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. And we invite you to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or Spotify. I'm your host, Joseph Grove, and we'll be back soon with another episode of the Animal Wellness Podcast.